Good morning, family. So glad to see everyone here worshiping with us this morning. Welcome again to River Valley Community Church. Thank you, Ted and Emily and Cade. And thank you, Ted and Emily, for the five years of service of helping lead us. Um, we will say a more thorough thank you and not goodbye, but just thank you um, next week. But yes, we, we do appreciate it. So we are in the middle of a series going through the book of Galatians. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 4 here in a little bit, and so you can turn to your Bibles there if you want to right now, or if, but don't wait when we get there. It'll be on the screen as well. And so hopefully through this book of Galatians we can see the emphasis that Paul has in preaching to these early, this early church about the gospel and what is fundamental to our faith, and that is Jesus Christ and how he gave himself up for us so that we can have salvation and we're going to be seeing that again today. And so before we go there, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, I thank you so much for this time when we can gather as your people, when we can open up your word and see your truth laid out for us, when we can know for certain how you have saved us, how you have loved us, how you have given your son for us so that we can be yours. Lord, I pray for this time as we open up your word, that you bring it to life in our hearts and our minds, that you can teach us what we need to be taught, that you can show us how we need to grow, that you can bring us to be your people more and more every day as we apply your word to our life. Lord, we love you and we seek you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Timing is important. We know that. We know that timing is important. You learn that really early. Like if you're a kid and you want to ask your parents for something, you learn that timing is really important. That you time it when they're in a good mood so that you can get what you want. You don't walk up to a parent when they're having an argument with the other parents and ask for something. That's bad timing. My kids have not yet to learn this, but that's just bad timing. But timing is important. We know how timing is important. When you're looking for a job, timing is important. Whether what's going on in uh, you know, the culture, what's going on in society, whether there's a recession or not, timing is important on all of these things. We know that. And if you're a Christian, the great thing is to look back in your life and you can see God's timing and God's hand in your life, and you can see how His timing is better than your own timing, and that sometimes when you're in the midst of it and you're wondering why things are happening, how they're happening, or things are not happening, how you want them to hap happen, you're wondering about God's timing in these things, but looking back, you can see it clearly, and you see that God's timing is good. This, this, this was heavy on my mind this week as, as I was reflecting and realizing that this next Tuesday will be the fifth year anniversary that I've been the lead pastor here at River Valley Community Church. And I'm just reflecting on God's timing in that, because if you don't know the story, it's a, it's a big and long story. But when I was voted in, I was actually looking out and being applied to other churches. And I had the weekend just before, and I, well, October 20th of that weekend, I had, was up in North Dakota on an on-site visit thinking about taking over a, a lead pastor position at this church in Rugby, North Dakota, of all places. And it's just so weird how God's timing can look back on that and say, God's timing is good because I'm here and not 
in North Dakota, which I think I'm, I'm thankful for. But it's a, it's a great thing about we can look back on your life and you can see God's timing and how things work out for the good and how God is working in things we can't even possibly understand. But when we can look back, we see that uh, the reality of this, that timing is so important. And when we come to God, his timing is perfect. And when we open up Galatians chapter 4, I believe you see Paul start talking about God's timing and sending his son and how it was perfect and how we need to trust him, not only in that, but in the salvation that his son brings to us. And so you can open up to Galatians chapter 4, and we'll see how Paul is continuing his argument, his, his line of reasoning that he, he's been doing since the beginning of the chapter. And how he starts in chapter 4 is kind of ending, uh, continuing and ending, ending kind of this line of reasoning that he did, was developing through chapter 3 about the law and the promise. And so he's talking about us, Christians, if we are in Christ, how we're heirs of God, how we're heirs along with Christ. And so he starts to, uh, with this argument in chapter one, uh, verse 1 of chapter 4 of Galatians where he says this, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until a debt set by his father. In the same way, also, we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God set forth his son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under law, so that we might receive adoption as sons." And because we are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through, through God. Formerly you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's, but now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testified to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. When we look at this passage, the first 20 verses of Galatians chapter 4, I'll just sum it up in this way. Trust the Father who sent His Son and His Spirit to redeem and adopt us. 
It's a little long-winded, but I think it kind of encompasses what Paul is driving home to these Galatians. As they're looking around, as they have false teachers coming up and trying to lure them away, he's saying the simple statement, trust the Father who sent His Son and His Spirit to redeem and adopt us. That we trust God in the salvation that He brings. We trust God in the timing of that salvation. We trust God over and against any other voices we hear. We trust the salvation that He's bringing through His Son that's being applied by the Holy Spirit, that is what Paul is trying to urge his listeners, his readers, the the Christians in Galatia, this fundamental thing. Don't look elsewhere. Don't take your eyes off the gospel. Don't be lured astray, but trust God. And he starts this argument by talking about the law's Role, which, as I said, is a continuation from last week. And so if you were here with us last week, Lane presented the, the last part of chapter 3 where he talked about the difference between the law and the promise and what the law's role was and what the promise's role is in our salvation. And so Paul is kind of continuing this argument. He's saying, hey, the law is a good thing. Don't get messed up and think the law is bad. The law is actually a good thing because it serves as a guardian and a manager to us before we knew who Christ was. Meaning the law is good because it gives us guide rails for life. The law is good because it shows us the nature of who God is. The law is good because it prompts us to realize that why God is holy, we are not. And so we need a Savior. And so the law is good for that purpose. And so it served in that guardianship and that manager kind of leading us in the truth. And so it's good. But yet, it gets twisted. As Paul says here, that people became enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. And this language can kind of get confused in elementary principles. We might think, well, is he talking about kindergarten, like the basic principles? But this language is really referring to the the spirituality, uh, the spiritual realm, because that's how it's used again and again in the New Testament. The elementary principles are referring to the spiritual agents behind actions. They're referring to that spiritual realm. And so really what Paul is saying, that we're enslaved to Satan, that we become enslaved to these things that oppose, these spirits oppose to who God is. And so Paul's argument is that the enemy... Satan took a good thing, the law, and twisted it to enslave humanity. That before, where the law was good and it showed us how we needed uh, uh, the Savior, it showed us who God was and it prompted us to worship Him and follow Him, now Satan takes that and twists it. And before, um, and instead of putting the light on Christ and the need for a Savior, and now puts the light on ourselves and Satan whispers to ourselves, you can do it on your own through the law. He twists the law and said where the law, and instead of the law pointing to Christ, now it points to our own efforts. And he makes it so now we're enslaved to it. Where we try to earn, where we try to achieve through the law, which we know, if we've lived here for any time at all, is hopeless because we'll fail. We'll mess up. And we'll be caught in despair. That Satan takes us and twists it, and so we get confused about its place in our life. John Stott, a, a, a Bible, a pastor, and a um, comment, uh, he wrote a commentary on Galatians, said this about this. He goes, God intended the law to reveal sin and drive men and women to Christ. Satan uses it to reveal sin and drive people to despair. 
God meant the law as an interim step in our justification. Sin uses it as a final step in our condemnation. God meant the law to be a stepping stone to liberty. Satan uses it as a cul-de-sac, deceiving his victims and disposing that there is no escape from its dreadful bondage. That he, the enemy takes the good guardian and manages the law and twists it, driving us to despair, driving us to look only for ourselves and forgetting the law is supposed to point to a Savior, point to Christ. And so Paul says that is the state of humanity until when the fullness of time had come. He sent his son. I love that phrase because it's talking about God's timing. When the fullness of time had come, God had orchestrated all of his history of the entire world to that point when it was just right, he sent his son for us. Other translations may put it, you know, the set time had fully come, when the time had fully come, when the time came to completion. These all have this idea that when the time was just right according to God's plan, he sent his son to redeem us. That God's timing is perfect in the sending of our Savior. When I used to work uh, more with youth ministry up in Colorado, a lot of times when you're sharing the gospel, people would have these questions, these, these uh, uh, junior hires and high school students would have these questions, and they basically kind of come down to, why did Jesus come then? Sometimes they were asking that question because it seems so remote from us, right? It's 2,000 years ago. They're like, why was Jesus back then? It seems so distant from my life. Sometimes they're asking because they understand what's going on and how Jesus saves us. And so they hey, if God loves us and wants to bring people to us, why did he not send Jesus right after Adam and Eve sinned? Why didn't the Savior come right then to save humanity? And so when we look at this, we see in this line, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, that God's timing is perfect and that it is right for him to send Jesus when he sent Jesus. Fundamentally, I think we just have to answer, we, we believe that because we believe in God's timing, and so he knows what's best. He knows how this is going to achieve his purposes when he sends his son. But when you start looking at when Jesus came, you can see how the world was ripe and ready for the Messiah, the Christ, to come in many ways. Culturally, it was ready because right now, when, when Jesus was born, he was born during the Roman reign when the, the empire of the Roman had basically one-fourth of the population of the, world's, of the world under its reign, and, and that area was under the Pax Roma, the peace of Rome. It was at a time of unprecedented peace in this society, meaning that people could travel, people could communicate, and so the gospel could spread. And so into this peace, here comes Jesus saving us that the Romans had built all these wonderful roads they had never built before. And so a message, the gospel message, could now transfer from one village and one town and one city to the next really fast and really rapidly and really smoothly that people could communicate the truth of who Jesus was. And so we see that being uh, a, a part of that fullness of time. That there was a common culture that the Greek culture had kind of reigned supreme, and so even when the Romans were running, they just kind of take and steal Greek culture. And so the Greek culture is reigning, so there's one common usage of language that people actually have Koine Greek where they can communicate across cultural boundaries. And so now the message could be transferred all the more easier. 
that this is the cultural element of this Greek um, pantheism was kind of on the ebb, that people realized how the making images of gods that are kind of like this bigger humans doesn't really work. And so people were spiritually hungry, realizing that they needed something. And then ultimately, as Paul points out, that the law of Moses had done its work to prepare men and women to receive Christ. That the guardian, that manager of law, had done its work. It's prepared the soil of people's hearts to realize, how can I be made right with a holy God? There's only one way, and that is through Jesus Christ, a Savior coming to live on our behalf to save us. We see this perfect timing played out in the book of Acts. If you've read the book of Acts, we see how the gospel spread throughout the known world smoothly, and actually, even with opposition against it, it could not be stopped because the time was ripe for the Savior to come and the news of the Savior to spread so that people could know who Christ was and be gathered into God's people. That God's timing is right Paul says, because God's timing is right, we trust the Father who sent his Son and his Spirit to redeem and adopt us. So we know that God's timing is right in salvation in history and how he orchestrates that. But I don't think I'm far to extrapolate from that to talk about our own lives as we follow Christ and be reassured in the fact that God's timing is perfect in your life and in my life. That we see this here. Yeah, we can understand that probably on an intellectual level. God orchestrates history and moves the piece of history and makes it perfect and right for sinning the Savior. We understand that. But that same God who can do that is working in our own lives. That same God who loves us so much to bring the Savior at the fullness of time is working in our own lives to bring us to know that Savior in the fullness of our time. In the fullness of our time when we need to know who He is. That we trust this God. Why? Because that God is powerful and working in our lives and bring us to know who he is when the timing is right. And then when we look in our lives and we can look back in our lives and we see how God has moved in our lives, we see that fact to be true, that God's timing is perfect, and we see how he's moved in our life to bring us where we are in the, in the hard times and in the good times and trust him because his time is right. His timing is is right. And so when we read this, yeah, that this is talking about how he sends the Savior, but I also believe it's talking about the very nature of our God who we worship. And we know and trust him that his timing is right. And so if you are waiting and wondering where God is, I believe this is a call for us to trust God and his timing. If you are confused and wondering how God is working in this life, It's a call to trust our good God who loves us. We trust in his timing. Why? Because we trust the Father who sent his Son and his Spirit to redeem and adopt us. Because there's no mistake that's why that's Paul's next point, right when he says, when the fullness of time has come, what? God sent his Son to redeem and bring adoption, uh, to to adopt us. 
when he starts this in, in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, Christ sent his spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then you're heir through God. It's a great reasons why we should trust our Father, right? Because He has adopted us. He's redeemed us. He's brought us into His family. And He sends these two kind of uh, step kind of process of how He does this. He sends His Son and He sends His Spirit. And the true that we are adopted into His family, we're, made into, we're brought into God's family and we know who we are because He has sent these, uh, the Son and the Spirit. The Father sends the Son to redeem us. To bring us that redemption. He, he, he satisfies the legal demands of our sin. He satisfies the wrath of God. He brings us into the family of God. He pays for our debts. And we know how he does that. We know that Christ does that on the cross. But Paul doesn't spend a long time talking about the cross. He actually doesn't even mention it. He's just talking about how the Son redeems us. But he focuses on, rather, that he was born of a woman and born under the law to redeem all those who are under the law. And so he's focusing on Christ's humanity, that the Son came down and took on flesh and became as one of us. He was human for us. He walked a mile and more in our shoes. He was along with us. He experiences all the trials we experience and even more. He experienced the temptation that we experienced and even more and stood his ground and stood sinless before, before God. He did it perfectly. He did what we could not do perfectly as one of us. He was born under the law that he, when we could not fulfill the law, he fulfilled the law. He stood up to the law. He did everything the law required and more. There was nothing wrong in him and yet he stood for us and then he took our place as lawbreakers when he was the not the lawbreaker, when he was sinless, so that we could now receive his righteousness. This is how the Son redeems us. To represent humanity born as a woman, to represent the fulfillment of the law born under law so that we all who cannot fulfill the law are now made right, righteous before God because of that. He redeems us. But he also brings us adoption as sons. That he doesn't just redeem us as followers. He doesn't just redeem us as people out there. He redeems us and brings us in and calls us brother and sister so that now when God looks upon us, he sees us through the lens of Christ and sees us as his children and we are brought into God's family. Fundamentally, that is only true for those who believe in Jesus Christ. A lot of people talk about how all humanity is God's children, and in a way we can say, okay, you might be right because God gives breath to every, breath to every life, and he made all of humanity, but fundamentally what makes a Christian a Christian is that you get to call God Dad. You get to call God Holy Father. You get to look upon him and know that when he looks upon you, he sees his child in Christ, that he loves you as he loved Christ, and fundamentally that puts you in a different category when God looks upon the world because he looks upon you as his own and loves you. So we trust him because of that, of his love, that we see the fact that the almighty creator of the universe sees us as his child. But sometimes, if you're like me, a lot of times, it doesn't feel like it. You go through life it's hard. It goes through life, 
Maybe you feel down. Go through life and things don't seem to be working out for you. And you wonder, where are you, God? Is this true? I know this on, a, on an intellectual level that I believe in Christ and therefore I know that you consider me your son. I know that to be true, but I don't feel it. I love that, that Paul actually addresses that. Because he says, God not only sends his son to save us, he sends his spirit to speak into our hearts so that we can cry out, Abba, Father. That when we don't feel it, the Holy Spirit speaks into our hearts saying, this is true. You are loved by God. You are His in Christ. And whenever you pray, that great privilege that you have, and look up and pray, Father, know that is true. For you can only do that through the Spirit working in your heart, reassuring you that God loves you, reassuring you that God has given you access to the throne room of grace through His Son, that we can go and pray to our Father. I love how, again, John Stott kind of sums this up. He says, So the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, witnessing to our sonship and prompting our prayers is the precious privilege of all of God's children. No other qualification is needed. There is no need to recite some formula or strive after some experience or to fulfill some extra condition. Paul says clearly that if we are God's children and because we are God's children, God sent his spirit into our hearts. And the way he reassures of our sonship is not by some spectacular sign or gift, but by the quiet inward witness of the spirit as we pray. That when we pray, we are reassuring ourselves again and again. This is true. My Father loves me. He sent His Son to die for me. And I know this because the Spirit tells me in my heart again and again, this is true. So we trust the Father who sent His Son and His Spirit to redeem and adopt us. And if this is true, we can understand why Paul looks, metaphorically, because he's not there, but as he's writing a letter, looks at the Galatians and says, I'm perplexed by you. Why are you turning back? He talks about how if they who knew God, or rather better yet, he says, you are known by God. God knows you through Christ. If this is true, why would you seek to be enslaved again? Why would you be lured away by false teaching? Why would you take your eyes off of Christ? Why would you be confused? He's perplexed by them. Why would you not know the truth? You've been freed from that life. You've been freed from enslavement to those other things that are not even gods that you're falling after. So why would you now lose sight of that salvation you have in Christ? 
It's the same urging I think we all need to hear on a daily basis, especially when we're not feeling it, especially when days are getting hard. We need to remind ourselves again, why would we ever think about taking our eyes off of Christ? We need to look at him and trust in him and know that he has saved us. We need to keep our eyes fixed on him as the author and perfecter of our faith. We need to follow him and know that he has everything good for us in store for us, that he has a plan for our life, that we are looking for him and knowing how he's working us and that his timing is perfect. As we talked about, we need to trust in him, we need to hear that same urging that he gives the Galatians here. Why would you do that? Don't get sidetracked as some of these Galatians were doing, where they're going back to trying to earn their place before God, where they're trying to be enslaved again and following the law, how they were celebrating these, these days and seasons and years, thinking somehow that's going to do for them. He says, no, keep your eyes focused on Christ. And in our context, so often that is, don't be, don't get confused in thinking somehow we take those good things and we start enslaving ourselves to them. Don't think somehow God's getting mad at us or God's getting uh, frowning upon us if we don't live up to his standard or somehow God is disappointed with us or somehow we're on, you know, plan B of God's track for our life. No. Paul says, look upon him and know his love for you. Know that he cares for you. Know what he's done for you and trust in him and keep your eyes fixed and focused on Christ. So you can walk as he would have you walk and live as you have you live and be one of his. That we trust the Father who sent his Son and his Spirit to redeem and adopt us. And I love this last part that we read. Because Paul lays it on thick. He is not opposed to leveraging his personal relationship with these Galatians to get them to listen to what he's saying. He talks about how, hey, when he came to them, you, uh, you know, he urges them to become, one of him, become like him because he came to them as one of them. It kind of harkens back to 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 22, where Paul talks about his ministry style. I'll just read it really fast. How He talks about how he ministers to people, and he, and he talks about, you know, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under law became as one under law, though not being myself under law, that I might win those under law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. To I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them its blessings. So you get the sense that this is Paul talking, reminding him, when I came as one of you, I lived as one of you. I was right there with you, and I ministered to you, and you knew who I was, and we, we developed those bonds, and you loved me, and I loved you, as he continues saying, yeah, it was for some bodily element, which we don't know why Paul mentions that, or why he was there in Galatia, that he mentions his bodily element. It's not recorded in the book of Acts, but he talks about how he was sick, and therefore that's why he was there, but he did not burden them, even though he, he could have and that they loved him so much that they would have gouged out their eyes for him. And so he, he leverages this relationship with them really thick, saying, hey, you know me. I know you. Why would you listen to someone else now bringing a different gospel? People who want to make much of you, so probably you feel good, but they're doing it to shut you out of the, God, of the kingdom. That when I want to come to you, I bring the truth. So he's leveraging this personal relationship we had with them so that they realize and know who he's speaking. This is not just someone telling them the truth from afar. This is someone who was with them and loved them. And that you should trust what he's saying. 
he talks about how just because now he's telling them the truth, they can't consider him an enemy. He says, basically, because I'm not telling you the things you like me to tell you anymore, you think I'm somehow against you. And how perplexing that is. But how real is that? That when Paul is speaking to them, they, just because they are not receiving what he has uh, to say any, uh, well anymore, they kind of get confused and they don't really like to hear what he says anymore. And he says, that should not be the way it is. You should trust what I say because I love you. I think there's some really big implications in that for our own lives and how we, how we leverage our relationship for the gospel. That we can take a page out of Paul's book and that we shouldn't be afraid to actually have relationships with people when we are urging them to consider who Christ is. We remind them how much we love them. That it, why would we not develop a relation with someone and then when we get to that point where we can share the gospel with them, we remind them, remember how much I love you. I would do nothing to hurt you. I want you to consider this because I care for you deeply and that we need to leverage those personal relationships as we share the gospel with people. And also another implication is that when we have leaders or when we have with pastors or when we have people leading us towards God and they start saying things we don't like that are still true but maybe step on our toes or maybe hamper our style or anything like that, how do we receive them? How do we listen to them? If they say something we don't like, do we call them our enemy? Or do we remember how much they love us and actually trust what they're saying is for our good? That we can look at Paul's ministry style here and see those implications for our own lives, that we leverage those relationships and we trust those people who love us and speak the truth to us, so that we listen to them and can grow with them. Because we trust them as, they tr- as we trust the Father who sent his Son and his Spirit to redeem us and adopt us. When we look at this passage, I think it all comes down to Paul reminding the Galatians that we're called to trust God. God, how he's revealed himself through his word. God, how he's revealed himself through his son and his spirit. That we trust God in the salvation that he has accomplished for us through his son. It's an urging that we don't look away from that. It's an urging. Don't get distracted from it. Don't make other things primary, but actually look at the gospel and make that the primary emphasis of your life and your heart. And that's what we, we, we rest on, that we trust God enough that we don't try to add to the salvation he's already secured for us. We trust God enough that we trust in how he brought it and how he delivered us. We trust God enough that when you read his word, we know this is true and we base our life on it. We trust God. And we also trust God in his timing as he brings about his life for us. We trust God in his timing for ourselves as well and for other people as we share the gospel with them that his timing is good. And we might wonder about loved ones or friends that we have that we shared the gospel before and we wonder why God has not broken into their lives yet. Why do they not respond yet? But we trust God's timing that we're called to be faithful and he will provide the fruit on his timing as he brings his people home. And in all of these things we trust 
our God. We trust the Father who sent His Son and His Spirit to redeem and adopt us. Join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You so much for Your Word. That we can read it, we can know it, we can see how You have saved us and how You bring that salvation to us through Your Son being applied by the Spirit that we can trust it and know it and walk in light of it. That we can be yours in all of these things. That we can now respond for our life and live for you. That we, we can look to you and no other. And continue to trust you for all these things in life. For our salvation. For how you're moving in our life. For how you're bringing your blessings upon our life again and again. Lord, we love you and seek you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's all stand up together.